Well, good morning and welcome to The Mount. My name is Adam and we are beginning a new series today, a new four-week series called I've Got Questions. And over the next four weeks, what we're gonna be doing is we're gonna be looking at the Bible, at scripture, and seeing why this book, for so many of us, actually leads to more questions than answers. And I don't know if you know this, but the Bible is the top-selling book in all of recorded history. And when I say that, some of you, the, the, the skeptics, the cynics in the room, you're going to immediately say, well, yeah, that makes sense. It's one of the oldest books in all of history, right? And yes, that's true. Through its lifespan, it has sold more than any other copy of any other book through all of history. But not just that, even despite its centuries of publication, the Bible is still the top-selling book every single year, except 2007. In 2007, for the first time in history, the Bible got beat by Harry Potter. (laughs) Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows was such a cultural phenomenon that for the first time in history and the first time since then, the Bible came in second. Now, here's what's interesting about that. The very next year, the sales for Harry Potter tanked, right? Because people bought it once and they didn't want it anymore. But the very next year, the Bible sales continued to increase. And so even over all of these centuries, the Bible every single year continues to be published and produced more and more and more. In fact, most studies right now, most research would tell you that last year in 2022, or even go back to 2021, they would say that on average, about 100 million copies of the Bible were published and sold every single year. A hundred million copies. Now, I hear that and I wonder, after all of these years, why is it still so popular? Why do people continuously buy it and purchase it and read it over and over and over again? Perhaps, and maybe I'm wrong here, and maybe this is just my opinion, but perhaps it's because the Bible seems to be a book that is so true and so accurate. And when I, when I mean true and accurate, I don't mean that it's historically accurate, although I do believe it is that 100% is historically accurate and true in the things that it says, and we will talk about that next week. But what I mean by true is that I don't know about you, but when I read the Bible, when I open up Scripture and begin to turn through its pages and read it, I can't help but feel that it's true. I can't help but think that every single time I open the pages of scripture, it's as if I went to a party and met someone I had never met before, but they knew everything about me that I've ever done or said. You see, the Bible, maybe it's just me, but the Bible has this keen ability that when we read it, we begin to wonder, whoa, 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 how does it know that about me? How does it understand who I am? How does it think the way I think? Even though it was written thousands of years ago, how does it know my personality? How does it know who I am? It's as if instead of us reading the Bible, the Bible is reading us. Maybe this is why scripture says this about itself. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, all scripture or the Bible is inspired by God and it is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong, and it teaches us to do what is right. The Bible, when we we read it, it it shows us who we are and how we live and the way we do life, and it shows us where we are wrong and where we are right, and it's built on correcting us and teaching us to make us something new. Hebrews 4.12 says it about this. It says, for the, the word of God, the Bible, scripture, is alive and active 
It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Listen to this. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. The Bible is not just another book. It's living. It's active. It's the inspired word of God. Scripture says it is breathed out by God to human beings to show us who we are in all of our goodness and all of our badness to point to us that is something much bigger than we have ever realized. But for centuries, and for many of us, the Bible has led to more questions than answers. It's been debated for thousands of years. You either love it or you hate it, or you're like, I don't understand and I want nothing to do with it. And all of us at some point fall on all areas of that spectrum, sometimes every single time we read it. And so this morning what I wanna do is I just wanna take some time and explain how the Bible all fits together. And here's, here's why this is important, because one of the main reasons that we sometimes give for not engaging with scripture or reading the Bible is that because it is difficult to read. And I'll be honest with you, as a pastor, someone who has been following Jesus for almost 20 years now and for preaches about him quite regularly, I still open up scripture and there are times where I agree with that and I say, man, why does this have to be so difficult? Why does this have to be so confusing? Why does this have to be so hard to understand? And if we're not understanding how the, the Bible as a story fits together, it's very easy to get lost in the middle of it. Take, for instance, let's say that you decided tomorrow that you're going to begin to read the Bible for the first time, and so you go home and you treat it just like any other book you would ever buy at a store. You buy it and you open it up and you turn to the first couple pages and you find yourself in the book of Genesis. And you're like, man, this thing's pretty interesting, right? Like there's, there's a plot line here, there's a story, uh-oh, there's murder, there's revenge, there's, there's sexual things. This is a whole kind of intrigue going on here, and the plot line is interesting, and I'm really into this. And then you get to Exodus, and it's like the whole story just sort of ramps up even more chaotic. All of a sudden, there's these miracles and these plagues, and people are parting oceans and seas, and they're walking through, and things are collapsing. And all of a sudden, this is just chaos, and it's so much fun, and you're really, really into it. And then you get to Numbers, <laughs> or Leviticus. And you're like, what happened? Like, where'd the storyline go? Where'd, where'd the plot line go? Where'd the, where'd the tension, where'd the drama, where'd the conflict? Everyone knows that the Bible, a story, needs to have characters that are riveting. And I get to Leviticus, and it's just law after law after law. And so you're thinking, okay, maybe this is just a rough chapter. All books have rough chapters. I'll go to the next one. And now it's a book called Numbers. And it's a lot of numbers and numbers and more numbers. And so you're like, okay, it's just a bad couple ones. So you flip about 100 more pages. And now you find yourself picking up by the guy by the name of David, who's the king of this nation of Israel. And you have no idea who all these people or all these places are talking about. But you're excited because the storyline is back. The plot line is back. And you're like, I could get back into this. But then weird things begin to happen. And you're like, okay, maybe this is just too much. I'm going to flip forward a couple another hundred pages. And you find yourself, of all places, in a book that is nothing but poems and poems that don't even rhyme. <laughs> and you're like, okay, this is hard. So you flip through, you're thinking maybe this New Testament, this other piece of scripture is where I need to go. And so you flip to the New Testament and you begin to read the story in Matthew about a guy by the name of Jesus and he's exciting and there's a storyline and you're following and it's great and you read all of Matthew and then you get to the book of Mark and you realize it's the same story all over again. 
And not only that, but it does it for three more books. And you're like, why would anyone write a book that has four of the same chapters all over again? And by that point, you close it and you give up because it's hard and it doesn't make sense and it's confusing. I remember a few years ago, a show came out called Downton Abbey. Anyone ever watch Downton Abbey? And every woman in the room raised their hand right now. I remember one time my wife was watching this show and I sat down on the couch and I remember just kind of sitting down and being instantly confused. I was like, who is this lady? Why is she talking like that? And why is there this drama happening? And why are the servants mad at the the people who are in charge of the manor and all these different things? And I remember just beginning to sit down with her and I spent most of the show just asking her a question. Now, who's that? What are they doing? What's happening here? And And I wonder sometimes when we pick up the Bible, if it feels like we're jumping into the middle of a show and we don't know the context and we don't know the story and we don't know what's going on and we're confused and we're left wondering what is happening. And so, so here's the deal, and I know most of you know this, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page. The Bible, as a book, is actually a collection of 66 different books. And so when you think of the Bible, think less of a book and more of a library of books, a collection, 66 different ancient manuscripts or ancient documents or ancient letters that have been written to people throughout history. Not only is it 66 different books, but it is 66 different books written by 40 different authors, written over a time period spanning 1,500 years, written in three different original languages, written from three different uh, continents and culture and context, and you get all of this together, and it's no wonder when you have that many languages, that many years, that many contexts, that many cultures, that many different authors, that many different books, why it seems like sometime every single book of the Bible or letter of the Bible is a standalone that doesn't make sense and doesn't fit in with the rest. But here's what's interesting. The Bible, Scripture, from beginning to end, tells one beautiful story. One consistent, continuous story. Theologians have a word they use for this. They call this word salvation history or biblical theology. The idea here isn't, I know these are, these are big words, but we're gonna nerd out for just a second. Biblical theology is the word I prefer in this. Biblical theology is at its essence, at its core, in the most simplest form, it is the meta-narrative of scripture, the big overarching story that scripture tells us from the, the beginning of Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation. And you say, what do you mean by a meta-narrative? What do you mean by this overarching grand story? Let me, let me give you an example to help you think about this. Think of if maybe you have read the books or seen the movie the Lord of the Rings. It is multiple books into a collection of one story. Now, when you read these books or when you watch these movies, it is very easy to get lost in all the intricate stories between all the different characters while they're going to Mordor, while they're going to this place or this place, while they're doing this, and all of a sudden they break out into songs and dance and there's poems and there's all these different things. But what you have to remember is that the one consistent thing through all of the Lord of the Rings chapters and books is that there's one story that the one ring must go to Mordor and be destroyed so that Sauron can be defeated. But when we get lost in the little stories, we can lose sight of that. And so scripture is the same way. 
Yes, there's 66 different books, 66 different manuscripts, 66 different articles, 66 different letters that are all throughout it, but consistently there is one giant story that leaves us with a coherent beginning and end. And now you might be thinking, whoa, whoa, Adam, that's not true. Like I can literally open up my Bible and it's got two divisions. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. If it's one consistent story, why is it divided into two? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked that today. You see, the word testament in the original language Greek actually is the word covenant. And so what we see is our Bible is divided, in essence, into two covenants, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Testament or the Old Covenant is the way that God related to his chosen people, the nation of Israel, as they were wandering through the desert, as they were building a kingdom, as they were establishing a king, as they were in exile. is how he related to them through a certain sacrificial system. He made a covenant, a pledge, a committed relationship to them that if they did something, he would do something in return. It was a covenant. And then Jesus comes on the scene. About the year 1 AD, Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus lives this life and all of a sudden Jesus says, listen, I know there was the old covenant, but I'm giving you a new covenant. It is a continuation of the old, but it is now being fulfilled in a new way. So the storyline's not two separate, it's one storyline just with a new way of relating to the same God who is always there from the beginning. He says, I'm making this new. And so as a, a Christian, And you need to to know this. I believe that everything in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, points to Jesus. The tendency is to read the Old Testament and say, man, Moses was such a great hero. David was such a great hero. No. Jesus is the hero of the Old Testament. Every story points to him. They are archetypes, they are mirrors, they are futures pointing to how good and great because even those heroes of the Old Testament were fallen sinful people and so everything in the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. But not only that, everything we see in the New Testament must be interpreted by the Old Testament. You can't understand the New Covenant unless you understand the Old You can't understand how Jesus says, this is my body and my blood broken for you unless you know all of the Levitical sacrifices and the systems of how blood and bodies were to be spilt for the forgiveness of sin. See, it's not two separate stories. It is one continuous story from Genesis to Revelation. And what is that story? It is the story of love. The story of a loving God who loves his people so much that he will continuously, continuously, over and over and over again, pursue them despite their rebellion so that one day maybe they would open their eyes and see him for all of his glory and begin to live in a way that glorifies him to the world around them. It is a story of love. And here's what's interesting. This love story begins all the way back in Genesis chapter one, in creation. You see, the Bible tells us that in the beginning, there was nothing. It was dark, it was empty, and it was void. And then all of a sudden, a voice speaks out, 
And it's a voice that has control and authority over all of creation, over everything that has not yet existed. And this voice cries out and everything begins to come alive instantly. You begin to see light. You begin to see plants. You begin to see land masses. You begin to see animals. And you begin to see day after day creation begin to come alive where people begin to be born. And all of a sudden, God looks at the earth and he says, I have spent six days creating and everything is good, but it's not quite perfect. And so he says, there's one thing missing. And he begins to create out of dust, out of nothing, Adam and Eve, the first two human beings. And in his love, he gives them, don't miss this, complete freedom to do whatever they want. He gives them this state of perfection. He says, this garden is 100% yours. You may do however you wish. Scripture tells us that they are naked and felt no shame. They are in absolute eternal freedom to do and live as they please, except for one small thing. You see that tree over there? That is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Make sure you don't eat from it. Now, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil didn't mean that by eating this, Adam and Eve would understand good and evil because they already understand good and evil because they know that there are some trees that are good and one tree that is evil. No, no, the knowledge of tree and evil in the ancient Hebrew word means it is the authority to determine what is good and what is evil. So what God is telling them, do not eat that tree because if you eat that tree, you will begin to think that you are like me where you have the authority to proclaim something is good and something is bad. And I don't know about you, but there are moments in my daily life where I wish I was God and I could proclaim what is good and what is bad. And so what we see in this perfect garden is Satan appears, the the enemy of God. And he appears and he begins to entice Adam and Eve into eating from this tree. And in an act of rebellion, they do just that. They walk over to the tree and they, they pluck the fruit from it and they, they begin to eat it and, and instantly the entire world, all of creation changes instantly. What once was perfection is now broken, is now shattered, is now cracked and fractured. And it wasn't just their relationship with him. In fact, the moment that sin entered the world, the moment that this act of rebellion occurred, Adam and Eve looked at each other and realized we are naked and this is not okay and they began to cover themselves because relationally with each other, they were fractured and cracked and broken. Physically with the world, it was broken, it was cursed. The earth would now be cursed and also spiritually, they were no longer whole with God. It was broken and fractured. This act of rebellion, this curse affected every single aspect of all of creation, not just humankind. And so God, in his love, in his holiness, in his righteousness, kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden. Why? Because he is so holy and so pure, he cannot be around their wickedness. And so he kicks them out, but on the way out, he tells them a promise. From Genesis chapter 3, he says, one day, One day a hero will come and he will defeat the enemy and make everything right again. And what you see is from this moment forward, mankind's slip into rebellion and evil and disobedience continually escalating over and over and over again. 
And after a season of this, after the sinfulness and wickedness escalates to the point where, where a despicable acts are occurring, God says in scripture that he is heartbroken over the state of mankind. He decides he's going to fix this. He is going to flood the earth. And so he makes a promise with a family. He makes a covenant relationship. He shakes the hand of a person by the name of Noah. And this, this first covenant is with one family. It is a small covenant limited to a few number of people. He says, I am making a covenant with you, Noah, that you will be the one who is saved. Not because Noah was this amazing person who did obedient things. No, because God chose him in his grace and his mercy and in his love to be the line that the earth would be rebuilt from. And so God floods the earth. He destroys the wickedness. And all of a sudden, Noah begins to thrive. And after a while, the story continues. We see a new person begin to emerge in the biblical story, a man by the name of Abraham. And God comes to Abraham in Genesis 12, too, and says this. He says, Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. When God made a covenant of love with Noah, it was a covenant with a family. When he makes this covenant of love with Abraham, it is with an entire tribe of people. He says, I will make your tribe great. Your nation will be great. And he looks at him, and here's what's interesting to me. It's not because Abraham was obedient in any sort of way. Oh, Abraham did nothing at this point in Scripture. Scripture never tells us that Abraham was following the Lord, that he was walking in obedience, he was doing nothing. No, God comes to Abraham even in the midst of his unbelief, even in the midst of his rebellion, and says, Abraham, I have chosen you to be the recipient of my grace and my love. And what we see in the life of Abraham is a biblical pattern begin to emerge even from those early days where the God of Scripture is a God of grace first and obedience second. He comes to him and says, I'm choosing you to be great. Then Abraham is credited with obedience and righteousness for doing what the Lord has asked him to do. If you fast forward in the story from there, we find God's people now known as the Israelites in a land called Egypt in slavery. They're, they're oppressed, they're ruled by the Egyptian people and they're enslaved and they, they are struggling and they're crying out to the Lord. They are feel as if they have been forgotten and God doesn't care for them. But the Bible tells us that God in his love has not forgotten his people and he hears their cries. So he rescues them. He displays his power in some mighty, miraculous ways. And again, we see another biblical pattern that emerges over and over and over again. I love this about the Exodus story is that God rescues them even before they have to obey. Again, he comes to them and he says, you are my chosen people and I'm going to save you because I choose you, because I love you because you matter. And he takes them in this miraculous story where they flee the country of Egypt and he parts the Red Sea and they go through the waters and all of a sudden the waters crash back down on the Egyptians and they find themselves in the Sinai Desert and it's there in the Sinai Desert that God gives them the law, the bulk of part of the Old Testament. And in this law, he makes another covenant with his people. He gives them laws on how are they, how they to act and obey and to live. 
And again, the the covenantal pattern of love that we have seen all throughout scripture continues in this moment. God comes to them, and so many times when we see the story of the law, we think it is about rules and regulations, and it means obedience before God will bless you. No, 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 no. God comes to them, and look what he says to them. He says, listen, I'm going to give you this law for you to live by, but I've already saved you and redeemed you from the Egyptians. Even in this moment when he makes this covenant with the nation of Israel now, it started with a family, went to a tribe, now is a covenant with the nation. He says, even though you haven't chosen to obey me yet, I have already rescued you. Why? Because God's loving covenant is always grace first, obedience second. It's the story of how he redeems his people. And through the law, we see God's people struggle. They struggle with obedience. They spend the next 40 years wandering around this place called the desert, waiting for the moment where they can enter this place called the promised land, the place that God has prepared for them and told them about. Until finally, after 40 years, God says, it's time, you may enter. And so they they enter this promised land and they spend a season defeating the enemies of God, not because God wants genocide to happen, God because God wants to wipe them out, because the nations that were there were unholy and not righteous and God will punish sin. So they are the instrument that he uses in that moment of history and it hasn't happened ever since then. But God pushes them into the promised land and they go and they take over the place that will become their own. And immediately when they get there, they look around to all the other nations and even in this story, we see our own selves. They say, whoa, God, every other nation has a king why can't we in essence what they are saying is God the grass must be greener on the other side those people have that why can't we those people have a king they can worship they can bow down to they can go talk to who can protect them who can fight for them why is it the only king that we have is the king that lives in the sky that we can't feel or see or touch God make us like the other people and you see this pattern begin to emerge where God's people even despite his covenantal love and his blessing, long to be like the world around them. And I don't know about you, but I see that in my life. Where I experience God's blessing and his goodness and his favor, and I'm always like, yeah, but what about them? Look what they have. Look what they've got. So God gives them what they want. He says, fine, you want a king? You can have a king, and a kingdom is established. And he selects a man by the name of David, not for what David has done, not because he's a mighty warrior at this moment. No, he picks David because David has a heart of love for God, because the condition of his heart is another act of grace God selects David and he makes a covenant with him. Again, this covenant of love begins to expand. What started with Noah with a family, what went to Abraham with a tribe, what went on the Sinai Peninsula was a a, a nation is now a covenant with an entire kingdom. The covenantal love of God is growing through each movement of history. And what you see is he tells the people that you will be my chosen people and your role will be to ensure that all the nations know of my glory and my fame forever and ever. But unfortunately, even the best kings aren't great kings all the time. And what we see is king after king through David and his son Solomon and all the future kings, that even if and when they were following the Lord, they struggled, they stumbled, they failed and made miserable, miserable choices. And I read this and I say, scripture, why didn't you leave that out? 
because there is no other ancient antiquities document that tells of the downfalls and the pitfalls and the struggles of their kings. But the biblical writers inspired by the word, the breath of God knew. They wanted to show that even in the midst of our disobedience, God's covenantal love endures. His faithfulness continues. They're showing us that mankind since the garden has been broken and fallen and short, but God's love remains steady and consistent and strong. And so, for a period of 500 years or so, we see this spiral of disobedience where the, the kings and the people of God do what is right in their own eyes. They, they live as if they want to live however that wants to be. And this is this pattern of disobedience and disobedience falling more and more into sin. And on the exact same time that all of this spiral of disobedience is happening, an invading armies begin to invade them and take them hostage and move them into countries. And it's known as the period of the exile. And it's during this exile that two of the most promising and interesting things in scripture happens where we have these parallel tracks in the story where on one hand we see this spiral of disobedience where God's people are getting more and more sinful and more and more rebellious and on the other track we see this situation where they are these prophets and they are spiraling more and more in their proclamation of God's love because what we see is over and over and over again in scripture when his people disobey the love he has for them increases over and over and over again and the prophets just continue proclaiming listen people of God listen nation of Israel. Listen, kingdom of God, your sin, your disobedience does not break the covenantal vow that God made with you because he still loves you. He still pursues you. He still chases you relentlessly. And one day he is going to send someone who will make it all right, who will fix the brokenness you feel in your heart, and he will allow you to finally have the power and the ability to live a life that is the way I want you to live. But nothing happens. For the next 400 years, scripture goes silent. There's no news, there's no prophets, there's no new books, it's just silence. Sure, the world around Israel is moving fast, Nations are coming in, the Persians walk in, they get defeated, the Greeks come in, they get defeated, the Romans take over. Everything is changing, everything is moving, but for the Israelite nation for 400 years, God does not speak. Now, imagine being an Israelite during this time. After four or five years, like, okay, maybe it's coming. After 20 years, after 30 years, after 40 years, after an entire generation dies off, after 100 years, after 200 years, after 300 years, you begin to wonder, maybe, just maybe, this whole thing was made up. Maybe the promise that God gave us in Malachi 3.1 when he says this at the end of the Old Testament, he says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the what? The covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord God Almighty. Maybe, just maybe Malachi was wrong. Maybe no one's coming. Maybe this is where the story should end. Maybe we are left alone and this whole thing we have been believing since Genesis till now for the past thousands of years has been a hoax. Where is God? And then finally, 
After 400 years, an angel comes to a teenager in a small town in Israel and says, Mary, I have good news. I'm starting this thing up again. The long-awaited one is coming. The Messiah, the Savior, the King is coming. And that baby grows up. And 30 years later, on some random day, this smelly, long-haired dude who wears camel-like clothes and eats locusts dipped in honey goes down to the Jordan River, and he begins to proclaim, prepare the way of the Lord. Behold, the Lord is coming. Something is about to happen. And no one has seen this for 400 years, and everyone's excited. Everyone's like, what's happening? Why is this guy, this prophet, what's he proclaiming? What's he doing? And the religious leaders come down to the River Jordan to see him, and they say, who are you? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we have been waiting for for 400 years, the one that has been promised, the one that our soul aches for, the one that we can't wait to come and rescue us and make things great? And he looks at them and says, no, that's not me. I am the one that Malachi promised. I am the one who is coming to prepare the way for the Lord, the one who is letting you know that the one who is coming after me is the one that you have been waiting on. And then in that moment, he sees Jesus walk down to the water, and he immediately sees him, and he says in the most dramatic scene in all of Scripture, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And immediately... After being baptized, that Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the the son of God, born of a virgin birth, begins to do ministry. And he begins to heal the sick. He begins to teach ways that no one has ever seen before. He begins to challenge the religious leaders in ways that no one has ever experienced before. He begins to do all of these different things that are are new and different and exciting, things that are, are somewhat familiar but aren't entirely familiar. And he begins to teach a a system of, of love and grace and mercy, not duty and obligation. And why is this important in the way? Because he's not just a man. He's the son of God in human flesh. He is the literal one who will fulfill every single Old Testament prophecy that points to him. He is the one who is saying, I am he. I was with him in the beginning and I have always been with him. I am the living flesh of his covenantal love relationship with humankind. And as he teaches and performs miracles, his followers begin to grow, but so do his enemies. And all of a sudden, eventually, his enemies grow large enough and powerful enough that he is betrayed, arrested, falsely tried, spit on, mocked, beaten, crucified, and dies. And in this moment when he dies, his followers thought, maybe we're wrong. Maybe this wasn't who we thought it was. Maybe, maybe God's not real. And then three days later, he rises from the grave. He empties death. The tomb cannot hold him. The grave has no power over him. And through his death and his resurrection, he establishes a new covenant. A covenant not based on duty, not based on religion, not based on works, but a covenant based on his sacrificial work on the cross. But here's what's interesting. 
the covenant matches all the others. Grace first, obedience second. It's as if God in human form comes down and says, listen, human beings, since that fateful day in the garden, I have been pursuing you and pursuing you and slowly widening the covenant. It started with a family, then went to a tribe, then went to a nation, then went to a kingdom, and now it's to the entire world, the church. I've been slowly showing you that my covenant of grace has been there from the beginning. And you are my people, and I choose you. And I made a way for you to be whole and righteous and good. And then his followers gather together. And in Acts chapter one, verse eight, we see this, the birth of the church. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And all of a sudden, the people of God, the chosen covenantal people of God, have experienced a power that they've never experienced before, a power to live a life in God's power, where they can stop trying to do it their own way, in their own strength. They can be weak and trust in him. And then you see, Jesus says, now go. And you see this group of normal, ordinary, everyday people In fact, scripture calls them idiotes, for idiots. And he sends them out. And and a group of normal, every ordinary people go into the world without a single weapon. And they go from a nation of people that is being persecuted and sought after and trying to get killed to changing the history of the world to where even the Roman Empire gives them faith and believes in Jesus because they have the power of God in them. And then fast forward, and scripture ends with Jesus returning. And he says, listen, I'm coming one day to fix it, to make it right, to fix what happened in the garden, and I will defeat Satan, and the enemy will be cast out, sin will no longer exist, death will no longer exist, and the relationship between God and his people, that original state of perfection, will be found in a new creation and he says even in that new creation it is not based on obedience but grace revelation twenty two seventeen: the spirit and the bride say come and let the one who hears say come let the one who is thirsty come and listen to this let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life what began in creation now finds completion in a new creation 66 books 1,500 years, 40 different authors, three languages, three continents, one story, the story of your redemption, the story of a God who knows your heart and says, I know what you've done. I know who you are. I know the mistakes that you have made, but I choose to love you. I choose to pursue you. 
It's the story of a king who could have stayed in heaven and said, I demand that you do this. But no, he chose to humble himself to come to earth to be one of us so that he could live our life, die in our place, and buy us the freedom that we could not earn in any other way. It's the story of a father who sees his children running in disobedience in every direction possible, and he waits patiently for thousands and thousands and thousands of years from Genesis all the way to the life of Jesus, just waiting patiently for them to turn and come back to him. It's the story of a God who loves you and I so much that he will pursue us. It's the story of his covenantal love experienced through grace, not obedience. Listen to the way John says this in 1 John. This is the story of God. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. For this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for us. So when you read the Bible, don't get caught up too much in the details. Sure, some stories are hard. Some things are complicated. They don't make a lot of sense. But the overarching story, there is a God who loves you and he pursues you and he chases you down, and he dies for you so that you can live for him. Let's pray. Jesus, we are thankful that you are a God who loves us so much, that you in your covenantal love pursued us, you chased us, you created relationship with us to know us intimately even when we wanted nothing to do with you. God, this morning, we celebrate your faithfulness in our lives. We celebrate that even when we didn't deserve it, when it wasn't based on our obedience, you pursued us by grace. This morning, as we continue praying, maybe you're here and as we're praying, you're thinking, man, I've never heard the story of the Bible like that, that there is a God who loves me that much I just want to tell you it's true I believe it in my heart I've seen people change when they experience it and maybe today is the day for you maybe today for the first time in your life you would say Jesus be my king I want to receive your love. I want to enter in this covenantal relationship with you. I want to repent and turn from my sins and give my life and surrender to you and your lordship. If that's you this morning, you want to say yes to the God who loves you so much that he has been chasing and pursuing you for thousands of years. Just right where you are, whatever campus, would you just slip up your hand? Jesus, I need you. If you raised your hand, let's pray this prayer. Father, I am a sinner. I am broken and weak. Jesus, come into my heart. Make me new. Be my Lord. Save me. Amen.